0: Go ahead and open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5, Deuteronomy chapter 5, we are on the fourth of the Ten Commandments this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 5, and we are going to read from verse 6 down to verse 15 of Deuteronomy chapter 5, Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting in verse 6. And would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So we've come to the fourth of our series in the Ten Commandments this morning. The first being, no other gods. You shall not serve any other god aside from Yahweh, the Lord. You shall make no images of any gods uh, from the nations around you or any images of God Himself. And you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And as we come to the fourth, it is a, a commandment about observing the Sabbath day. Now, as we work through this, we're going to do a few things here this morning. We're going to explain the command, we're going to give you a history of how that worked out in Israel, talk about a few lessons to learn from Sabbath and purposes for Sabbath, and how it applies or doesn't apply to us believers, New Covenant believers today. That's kind of the outline of where we're going to go this morning. So the Lord commanded that ancient Israel observe and remember the Sabbath day. What that means is, the Lord set apart, purposefully set apart, the seventh day of the week for a singular purpose and activity. And what is that activity? Is that me? Rest. As he said in verse 12, observe the Sabbath day, meaning keep this day, guard its remembrance. Its observance and preserve its practice. Observe the Sabbath to keep it holy. That's the next clause to keep it holy. Meaning, preserve and guard the Sabbath, Israel, by setting it apart, by putting that particular day to a special use. Ah, it's down here. Consecrating it for the purpose. That the Lord has set it aside for. And what is that purpose? Rest. Now see this third, the third clause. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. This remembrance and preservation of the seventh day of the week as a holy day of rest was not a suggestion. It was not something the Lord handed down to Israel as something they could take or leave. It was a command, it was an order that they must not neglect, but instead must carry out. So here's the command. Six days you shall labor, verses 13 and 14, and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So you see it there, right? For six days, six of the seven days in a week, the Israelites were to do all of their necessary tasks. They were to ply their trades, but on the seventh day of the week, they were commanded to cease, to halt, to discontinue, to refrain from those tasks for what purpose? Rest. It's a key word, rest. The Lord is concerned with His people's rest, and so He established the six days on and one day off cycle for their benefit. For us who take weekends off, it's kind of built into our lives. We're used to it, right? We are very important. We are very keen on our days off. But you got to know that this command, when it was given to Israel, was actually quite a surprise because there was no other nation that practiced a Sabbath. There was no other nation that was given a day off in which to rest. The Lord established this for this people, his distinct people, because he cares about their rest. He cares about your rest. And this six days of work and rest on the seventh day, it was actually built into Israel's life from top to bottom. It was built into their national life. So for example, when Israel was dwelling in the wilderness, you remember, right? The Lord fed the people with bread from heaven called manna. And he commanded them, saying, Each morning you go out and you gather up this manna. You bring in as much as you need. As Moses would say in uh, Exodus 16. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. The idea is, the Lord called Israel, Go out, gather the manna, bring in as much as you need for six days of the week. But on the sixth day, gather enough For two days, so that you don't have to go out on the Sabbath, the seventh day, you can rest on that day, because there's no work to be done on that day. Gather up your double portion. And for Israel, it didn't matter the season, didn't matter the day, didn't matter the time, during whether the season was busy or whether the season was light. Sabbath was always to be observed. In Exodus 34, 21, we read the Lord say it quite explicitly. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest time, you shall rest. And it was to be observed by every single person in every single household throughout Israel, as we read in Leviticus 23. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. A holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. That Sabbath is called a holy convocation, means that it was a summons for every single person in the nation of Israel to observe it. All the peoples everywhere throughout Israel, whatever your tribe, Whatever your geographic area, wherever your familial dwelling place is or was on the Sabbath day, it didn't matter. You were to do no work, but you were instead to rest. And to go along with the principle of one day in seven as a day of rest, the Lord also established among the nation of Israel a Sabbath year, a year of rest for the land, As we read in Leviticus 25, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow in your field, for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits, but in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land. A Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. So you see, right? The seventh day of each week was to be a a day of solemn rest for the people throughout Israel, but the seventh year was to be a year of solemn rest for the land. And in that year, there was to be no sowing, no pruning, no reaping, and no gathering from the land. Now, if you're wondering, well, then what were the people supposed to eat that year? That's a good question. And the Lord addresses that in Leviticus 25.30, saying, If you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year? If we may not sow or gather in our crop, the Lord says, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. In other words, the Lord said to his people, don't worry about it. I've got you. Rest and I will provide. I am your great provider. I am the bringer of everything that you need. I will bring rest to your body and I will feed your hungry stomachs because I, the Lord, do these things for you. So you got a day of rest in seven, you got a year of rest in seven, and then on top of that, after seven Sabbath years, meaning after seven cycles of seven years, 49 years, the Lord also established a year of jubilee, he called it. A year of national rest and national... Redemption. You can read it in Leviticus chapter 25. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall sound the trumpet through all of your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. The field meaning the countryside or the wild growth. So in the year of jubilee... The seven times seven year, the year of freedom, the year of remission, was a year of rest. It was a time of cancellation. It was a time when all of the deals, the business deals that had been made over the last 49 years had been set aside when all the sales of the land, all of the leasing of the land was all released and everything went back to their original owners because the Lord commanded Israel that you were not allowed to sell your land in perpetuity. Why? Because it belongs to me, the Lord. And in the 49th year, the 50th year, all lands reverted back to their original owners, to their original clans, their original peoples. And in the 50th year, all who had sold themselves into another servitude for the purpose of making money for their family, feeding their family, providing for their family, all who had sold themselves into that sort of servitude and slavery, they were also set free and brought to rest and sent home. This year was to be a year of rejoicing. So, if you're tracking, you can see that the Lord established this one in seven principle throughout many different areas of Israel's life. It was built into their weekly, annual, and long-term life as they lived in the land. Sabbath was very important in Israel. So with reference to the Sabbath and the command to observe it, How did or how does the Lord in this text define rest? Well, look at verse 14. The commandment continues. On it, meaning on the Sabbath, on the seventh day of the week in Israel, you shall not do any work. The word for work here speaks to any and all activities aimed at making or doing something that is not restful. It includes conducting your business, trade, laborious tasks, services, and taking part in your occupational labors and concerns. On the Sabbath day, the Lord commanded all the people of Israel to stay away from their workplaces, to stay away from that which was not going to bring them recreation and rest. And he actually forbade them from taking part in any work or job-related tasks. That's what he means by do not work. And to whom did the command extend? Look at verse 14 again. The command extends to you or your son or your daughter. That means your immediate family. Not just you, boss man or boss woman. Not just you gets to take the day off work, but your whole family gets to take the day off work too. It continues in verse 14, or your male servant or your female servant, meaning anyone who is in your employ, any worker is in your house or at your business, they too were to be given the Sabbath day as a day of rest. The boss man couldn't simply take the Sabbath day off for himself while sending all of the people that work for him to the place of work while he took the day off and kicked his feet up. So neither family nor servants, verse 14 continues, nor your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock. The command to rest on the Sabbath even extended to the animals in their care. And this is for a few reasons. So that the owner of the business couldn't be thinking about and doing his business while he was supposed to be at home relaxing and fixating on the Lord. He couldn't just set his animals to keep their work. I don't know, you know, if they're going around in a circle um, making something. I don't know, there's some machine making something. The corn is being ground or whatever it is that the animals are doing. No, they got to rest too. And this is because the picture of rest was established by the Lord in the nation of Israel for all to see. As a person was resting in their home and they looked out of their door and they saw their animals resting, it was to remind them of God's good provision and gift. See, the Lord had done this in numerous ways for the nation of Israel. He was always providing for them pictures of greater realities. I know a lot of us have a difficult time wondering and figuring out what does it mean that the Lord said, don't plant two types of uh, crops in one field, or don't make a shirt made of two different fabrics, all of that is a picture given to the Lord, to Israel, as a reminder of their call to be a distinct and separated people, not to intermingle or intermix with the nations around them. So even when they looked at their fields, it's like, oh yes, I'm supposed to be distinct from everybody. When they wore their shirts, oh yes, it's one fabric because I'm called to be distinct. They were symbolic reminders of their call to be a distinct people. In the same way, you look out the window, you see your animal resting, it's a reminder, oh yes, the Lord cares about and is concerned about my rest and the rest of everyone in Israel. So whether it was the Sabbath year when the land was at rest, or whether it was the Sabbath day when your livestock were at rest, everyone was supposed to be at rest. So neither your family, your servants, your livestock, and verse 14 continues. Or the sojourner who is within your gates. You see that? Meaning the non-Israelites, the foreigners, the strangers in Israel. Whether they were passing through or whether they were living there. And the Israelite man could not take some foreigner who didn't have rights in Israel and force them to do work while they went and rested on the Sabbath. No, the Lord didn't permit that either. The The Sabbath command extended to those who were visiting as well. And that's revolutionary in the ancient world. And why are all these exempt from working on the Sabbath? Verse 14, so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. See, boss man, it's not just you that gets the rest. It's everyone. Because the Lord values rest for his people. In all of Israel in these ancient days, the Lord established that they have a day to settle down, a day for repose, a day for relaxation, a day for recreation, to take a break and to be refreshed. Now, there's a few lessons that we can draw from the establishment or the institution of Sabbath in Israel. First, work is not to be worshipped. In our day, this is one of the most laughed-off sins. One of the culturally respectable sins, that of workaholism or overworking. Nobody would laugh at sexaholism or alcoholism, but when somebody says, I'm just a workaholic, it's like, oh man, you're so funny. And many will sacrifice their children They'll sacrifice their relationships. They'll sacrifice their marriages on the altar of work. And why? So that you have a few more bucks to buy things that you don't need. They'll sacrifice their health on the altar of work only to be applauded by the company you work for, by those around you for your dedication and for keeping your nose to the grindstone. Now, Don't get me wrong. I want you to hear what I'm saying and hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that Scripture wants you and I to be lazy. Scripture does not applaud laziness. It does indeed applaud hard work. The Apostle Paul would say to the the Corinthian church, I worked harder than anyone. And he would call on Christians to work in their jobs as though they were working for the Lord himself. And to the church in Thessalonica, the Apostle Paul said these words, and he he spoke them to the people in the church who thought, well, I can be lazy, I can be idle, I don't have to go and do work. The church is just going to support me in my laziness. He said these words in 2 Thessalonians 3. We give you this command... If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their own work quietly and to earn their own living. So at this point, the church was known for supporting people that were down on their fortunes. Someone was, had a difficult, difficult path. If a widow lost her husband and couldn't support herself, the church stepped in and helped. But then there was this group of people who were just lazy. And they came to the church and they said, give us some stuff too. And they just didn't want to work. And Paul said, no, 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 no. You do not support those people. If they're idle, lazy, they don't want to work, they don't eat. Meaning you don't support laziness as a church. No, the the Christian in their workplace ought to be the best worker of the bunch. The Christian in the workplace ought to be the most dependable worker in the place, the most honest, the hardest-working people in our workplaces. We must do our jobs with excellence, with integrity, with diligence, So that our bosses are like, I could never get along here without you. But as you do that, work must never become your idol. Work must never become the thing that gives you your identity and your meaning. Think about it. How often in our day, when we are asked about ourselves, tell me about yourselves. What's the first thing you you say to define to that person or to explain to that person who asked who you are? Is it, I am a child of the living God by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it, I'm a cleaner, I pump gas, or as I used to call it, I'm a petroleum transfer technician. (laughs) That's what I called it in high school. We we identify ourselves by our jobs as if that was a more fitting and important marker of who we are, a better indicator of who we are than to who it is we belong. That's your primary marker. Are you a child of Jesus Christ or are you not? Your work does not ultimately define you Your relationship with, or your lack of a relationship with, the Lord Jesus Christ is what ultimately defines you. First and foremost, you are either a child of the Lord Jesus Christ, or you are a child of the devil. You are either, scripturally speaking, saints saved by grace through faith in Christ, or as the Bible says, a fool in rebellion against Him those who at this moment reject and rebel against the Lord Jesus Christ's call to faith and forgiveness in His name, the Bible says, you are a fool. That's lesson one. Work is not to be worshipped. We work hard, we rest. And we define ourselves by relationship to Christ. A second lesson that we can learn from the Lord's establishment of the Sabbath to and in ancient Israel, is that God is our great provider. As we noted in the Sabbath year, the Lord blessed the land of Israel with abundant production in order to feed the people in the year when they weren't to be tilling the land. And on the Sabbath day, when the Lord said, you cannot go out and gather it up because you're supposed to rest the manna. You can't go and gather it up. The Lord provided for them a double portion the day before. Everything you have, everything we have, every blessing in our life, every morsel of food you enjoy at your table, every one of our homes that we live in, every one of us have cars that we drive and vacations that we enjoy, all of them are not the product of your work. It's not by our own hands that we secure and enjoy these things. No, first and foremost, primarily, these are the Lord's graces to us. It's a common grace that He gives to the saved and to the unsaved. These are dispensations from His generous and glorious hands, and may it never be that we have the arrogance and the gall to say, I secure these things myself. See, the Lord warned Israel about this very thing, and by extension, He warns us, thinking against thinking that we are the primary factor in the blessings that we experience and enjoy in our own lives. He says it in Deuteronomy 8, speaking to the Israelites as they're going into the land to live an abundant, peaceable, blessed life of obedience, he said this to them, he warns them, saying, Beware, lest you say in your heart that my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth." You shall remember that the Lord your God, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is to this day. The Lord is the one who gives you the power to get wealth. Too many of us, right? Too many of us get stressed out and anxious about our financial situation. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? And the thoughts of lacking these things when they flood our mind lead us to finding very little rest in the Christ who promises them to those who seek His kingdom first. Our trust in Christ is sapped as we begin to worry and have anxiety over these things. And in those moments when we believe that what we will eat and what we will drink and what we will wear are primarily up to us, that's when you get anxious. Jesus actually preached the opposite, didn't he? You remember in his Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of humankind, he said in Matthew 6, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life, is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? And He goes on in verse 32. The Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. There's your great life insurance policy. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, when Christ preached these words, you need to imagine there was a crowd of Israelites gathered before him to listen to these words. And as he speaks them, what he is doing is reminding them of their history. Oh, my anxious, worrisome, and fearful people. We have been here before. Have you not learned? What shall you eat? Don't you remember how the Lord has proven faithful to you in the past? Don't you remember your fathers when they dwelt in the wilderness? A harsh place with no food, not enough food for so many people. Do you remember what the Lord did? He fed them with manna from heaven. What shall we drink? Do you not remember your ancestors when they lived in a desert where there was no water? Don't you remember what the Lord did for them? He gave them water from what? A rock. You ever tried to get water out of a rock? The only one who could ever do such a thing is God Himself. And He did it for you. He provided for you. He gave you water from a rock of all things. What will you wear? Again, recall the Lord's care of your fathers in the wilderness generation. As you see in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 4, as Moses recalls for them, the previous generation, as they've been, they've been wandering around for these 40 years, he said, your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell for these 40 years. What shall you eat? What shall you drink? What shall you wear? The Lord has already proven to you that He provides these things for you. You serve the Lord who cares for His people The Lord who is trustworthy. And so before all things, know that He provides for His children. And so seek Him first. Seek His kingdom first. Live for Him. Strive to know Christ in a saving way. Strive to obey Him. Strive to obey His word. And as you do, trust in His gracious, generous, need-fulfilling hand. The Apostle Paul would buttress this in his letter to the Philippians, saying to them, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And Peter would also say in 1 Peter 5:7, cast all your anxieties on him, why? Because he cares for you. And King David in Psalm 55:22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved or never permit them to meet with final disaster. And this because the entire witness of Scripture is God loves and cares for His children. If you are His child here today, you can't even begin to understand the depth and the the degree to which your God loves you and cares for you. And one of the ways that He reminded Israel of this fact... Sabbath. A third lesson that we can learn from the Lord's Sabbath command is this. You and I are not God. And the world does not need us, nor does it revolve around us. The Lord created us. If you think about it, why do we sleep? The Lord could have created us in such a way that we don't need to sleep, right? And yet, here we all are Hopefully, most of you got a good sleep this morning. I can see which one of you didn't. Just kidding, although I can. (laughs) He's created us in such a way that sleep is necessary for our survival. And what is sleep? It's a reminder that you and I are finite and feeble. It's a reminder to us that things continue on as they always have on the earth while we lie unconscious in our beds. Sabbath is a reminder to the Israelites that the Lord oversees all the motions and all the movements and all the workings of the world, even while they are resting. Sabbath is a reminder that God upholds all things by the word of His power, and while we might at times be puffed up in our own heads and think ourselves indispensable, We might think that without our contributions, without our ideas, without our hands getting dirty, without our being engaged in work, that everything will grind to a halt. Sabbath reminds us that's just not the case. Many men and women throughout the millennia have believed and thought as much. Without me, everything would fall apart, only to now lie in the grave and the world has kept on going. Previous generations have come and gone, and the Lord continues to maintain all things according to his will and his purpose. And should the Lord tarry, the same will be true for each and every one of us. As important as we think we are, as indispensable as we think we are, one day we will lie in the grave and the world will just continue to go on. Sabbath is a reminder that the Lord is sovereign. And the Lord upholds all things. He is central. He is amazing. He is powerful. He is wise. Us, not so much. Sabbath reminds us of this fact. The Lord is the centerpiece. By His power and His will, all things continue to press forward. These are just a few lessons that we can learn from Sabbath. There are many, many more, but I want to continue on Moving forward here. Alongside of the lessons that we can learn from Sabbath, the Lord also, in His establishment of the Sabbath, provided Israel with a couple of reminders. Reminders that He is the creator of heaven and earth and that He is the redeemer of the slave. If you read the first telling of the law way back in Exodus 20, the Sabbath is the reason given for the institution of the Creation is the reason given for the Sabbath. And if you read Deuteronomy 5, redemption is tethered to the Sabbath. Creation and redemption. So, so, So let's look at those two things. First, Sabbath reminds Israel that God is creator. Let's look at Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So just as an aside, there are many who doubt or deny the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2, and one of the reasons they give is that Genesis 1 and 2 is poetic. It's a poem, therefore, it's not historical. Well, it's not true. They are indeed historical accounts, and when you read the Exodus, which is spoken in propositional truth and historical record, the creation account is established and confirmed thereto in the historical writings. This is what the Lord did. In six days He made the heavens and the earth, or the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and He rested on the seventh day. And we read about this rest in Genesis 2. There we read this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all the work He had done. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. So on the sixth day, God brought His creative activity with regard to the heavens and the earth to an end. For six days, the Lord masterfully and powerfully and wisely as the mightiest and most skilled craftsman and artisan in existence spoke everything into being by the word of His power. And on the seventh day, after having finished all of it, He, God, rested. And this isn't the rest of an exhausted God. God never gets exhausted. It's not the rest of a tired God. God does not get tired. This is a rest of satisfaction and sovereignty. See, the Genesis account of creation, while historical, is also what we call polemical, meaning that it is... It, As it is written, it presents a scathing, a withering, a blistering critique and condemnation of the false gods of the peoples all around Israel. See, their so-called gods could never rest. Why? Because their reigns were always at risk of being overthrown by some upstart, eager, ambitious rival god. By some attempt from a throne thief to overrule them and take the position of God themselves. But when you read the creation account and Yahweh, the God of Israel, rests, it's a sign to us that the Lord is king, that he is unassailable, immovable, unchallenged and unchallengeable by anything in creation. He has always been is and always will remain the only absolute and sovereign ruler over all things. And so he blessed the seventh day and rested from his work that he had done. And the Sabbath day was a reminder to Israel of the Lord's undisputed rule over all things and was designed to bring them comfort and security as those called out to be the people of this king. Rest on the Sabbath and remember the paramount supremacy of the Lord. And note that the Lord made the day holy, meaning He set it apart, He consecrated it, He sanctified it, He removed it from common use and made it a sacred day. The idea is He made this day different, it belongs to Him and so He called His people Israel to rest from their labors and to worship Him on this day. Now, this is also a polemic. This is also an argument, a display of the difference between the gods of the nations and the Lord. You see, Sabbath not only shows God's sovereignty, but it also shows God's care for His people in that, according to all the the stories of the nations around Israel, the gods of those nations, they created humanity so that... The gods could rest because now they had humans to do all the galley work. The gods created humans so that they might have a slave force to do the menial tasks that they no longer cared to do themselves. They rested in the heavens while their minions, human beings, did all of the drudge work below them. But God established and set apart the Sabbath for Man, Mark 2.27, you remember it, Jesus said it, the Sabbath was made for man. It wasn't made so that these gods could rest while people wasted away under the heavy burdens of ceaseless work, but it was made for peoples to rest from their labors. Another sign of God's love for and concern for and care for the people that He created and called to Himself. See, God doesn't create so that He can get something from you, so that He can take something from you. God doesn't need you for anything. He doesn't receive anything that He doesn't already perfectly possess from you. Everything you offer to God already belongs to Him. So when He creates and establishes Sabbath for Israel, it's not so that He might receive... It's so that he might give a gift to his people. When we get to Deuteronomy, Sabbath is tied to the Lord's redemptive work in Israel. So read Deuteronomy 5.15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. The Lord reminds Israel... Israel, my people, you had once been owned and forced to serve as slaves in the land of Egypt, but I, the Lord, brought you out, I redeemed you, I liberated you, I rescued you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, by my power, by my authority, and in my love. I brought you out from your heavy labor, from your arduous and hulking burdens, and I am now about to bring you into my rest, as he says in 95.11. He calls the land of Canaan my rest. I'm about to bring you into a land that is flowing with abundance, in a, to a land where you will worship and honor and serve me and be at rest as a result. You will live a blessed, peaceful, rest-filled life. These are the two reminders that are given to us, or the two purposes for Sabbath that are given to us in Exodus the Exodus uh, telling of the commandments and the Deuteronomic telling of the commandments. But on top of these two purposes, there's others listed in Scripture as well. For example, Scripture is designed for the people of Israel's refreshment, as we already noted in Exodus twenty-three twelve. On the seventh day, all shall rest so that they may be refreshed. Or in other words, that you might recover, that you might breathe freely as you relax. Sabbath also, the purpose of Sabbath was also to remind Israel of their consecration unto the Lord. Listen to Exodus 31, verse 13 and verse 17. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. It is a and in verse 17, it is a sign between me and the people of Israel that in 6 days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and on the 7th day he rested and was refreshed. And later also through the prophet Ezekiel, as the rebellious people of Israel went off into exile, the Lord spoke about all the ways that he blessed this people and of all the things that he provided for this people that they might know Him, obey Him, and live, saying this in Exodus chapter 20, or Ezekiel chapter 20, I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths. Notice the S on the end, the multiple, meaning the seventh day, the seventh year, and the seventh seven, the seventh year of sevens. I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Okay, now, if you've been following along up to this point, you might have noticed the fact that Sabbath was instituted in Israel as a reminder to Israel proper, as a day of rest for Israel proper, and as a sign of Israel's status as the Lord's consecrated people. We just just read it in Ezekiel, right? It's a sign between me, the Lord, and You, Israel. And as we all know, we are not Israel. So then that begs the question, what does Sabbath mean for us? Because Sabbath is so directly and clearly tied to Israel proper in the Old Testament. What does it mean for us? And is this seventh day of rest that is so clearly established in and for Israel binding on us New Testament believers today? Well, yes and no. Yes in principle, not necessarily in practice. So let's explain that. Let's look at the no first. Something to note for us is that nine of the Ten Commandments are reiterated for us in the New Testament as commands. They are applied to us as ways to live obedient, holy lives. Things like murder and adultery are shown by Christ to be maintained in the New Covenant, and he even takes them or plunges them a little bit deeper into the areas of thought and heart. Coveting, honoring parents, theft, single-minded devotion to the Lord, these are all reiterated and applied to believers in the New Testament, but there's only one that's not applied and reiterated and applied to believers in the New Testament. You know which one it is? The Sabbath. Now, why is that? few reasons, Sabbath, unlike the other nine commands, is in the Old Testament designated or included in the ceremonial regulations of God's law. For example, Exodus 31, we read this, "...you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. The people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel." So you see, Sabbath is a sign to Israel of the Mosaic Covenant. A sign between the Lord and the people of Israel, and for this reason, it is never imposed on believers in the New Testament. Instead, we see something a little bit different in the New Testament. So there is a time in Acts, as the church is being established, when a group of Judaizers, meaning believers, people who profess belief in Christ, but they want you to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. Uh, you have to follow all the Jewish laws in order to be a real Christian, they would teach. They came in Acts 15.1 and taught among the churches that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. After heatedly debating that subject, Paul and Barnabas went up to Jerusalem to to talk to the apostles and the church elders about this subject, to settle this question. Do the Gentiles have to follow the Jewish ceremonies, rites, and festivals at this moment? The two biggest rites and observances were circumcision and Sabbath. Read the New Testament and see how often they want to kill Jesus. Why? Because He doesn't follow their Sabbath regulations. Both are signs of covenants made to the people of Israel by the Lord. And the answer from the Holy Spirit to these apostles was this in Acts 15, 20. Abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. And when this news reached the churches, we read in Acts 15, 31, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. We don't, we're not bound by the ceremonial regulations of the law any longer. While the moral commands do indeed continue, the old remembrances are no longer binding on the church, the result being that nowhere in the New Testament are we commanded to observe the Sabbath, nor are we to rebuke anyone who does. In fact, the Apostle Paul taught that the observance of Sabbath was an issue left up to Christian liberty. In Romans chapter 14, we read this. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And Paul would also encourage the Colossian believers, as some of them were being judged by the heavily legalistic people for numerous things, including their lack of participation in Sabbath. Listen to this in Colossians 2. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food, And drink, or with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow, important word, a shadow of the things to come, and the substance belongs to Christ. So have you been commanded by the Lord as a Christian to observe the Sabbath? No, no you have not. However, there is a principle behind the Sabbath that still remains in force. Note the words of Colossians, Sabbath is a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ, meaning Sabbaths, days, and years of rest were a shadow. They were a pointer to something greater than so temporary and temporal a rest as those were were that were given to Israel. Sabbath was a pointer to the great and eternal rest that is available to all people by grace through faith in Christ. Sabbath rest culminates and finds its pinnacle expression in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, who is Lord and Savior. The writer to the Hebrews would make this point clear. He says in Hebrews 4.8, if Joshua had given them rest, meaning, if it were really true that Israel's attainment of rest was contingent on the promised land, they're being given rest on all sides and being physically able to rest in that land on Sabbaths, then God would not have spoken, Hebrews continues, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. See, the Lord in his grace who is concerned and cares about your rest has offers offers to all mankind in Christ an eternal rest that is greater and more wonderful than the sabbath and for all of you who turn to Jesus Christ in faith to all who are saved by his grace you have entered into that rest And you will one day be conducted into his eternal kingdom, the place of permanent, joyful rest. Now, again, I don't want you to hear me saying something that I'm not saying. Does that mean that we should not take a day of rest and recreation and repose? Of course not. It's good to take a day of rest. It's good to set aside days on which to recharge and to worship the Lord. That's what we're doing here, right now. We want to worship our Lord, our Creator, our Sustainer, the Lord who in Christ plucked each and every one of us who believe from the domain of darkness, from enslavement to sin and death, and brought us into the marvelous light of His forgiveness and rest. It is this glorious rest that our Lord Jesus Christ offered to anyone who would lay hold of it in Matthew 11. You know it. When Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, under the Old Covenant, in the shadow, Sabbath spoke to physical rest, all the while pointing to something greater. And here, now, in Christ, we see the reality that was aimed at by the Old Testament ceremony of Sabbath. So what does this all mean for us? The principle is this. Humanity requires rest. Physical rest, yes, but even more importantly than that, spiritual rest rest for our souls rest from the labor of works based righteousness which ironically enough the exact opposite is the exact opposite of the way the pharisees and many today treat and speak about sabbath have you noticed in our hands sabbath which is designed to bring rest and to point to christ becomes a burden to the people who make the rules that we apply to it. I've talked with a few people over the years, and they would tell me in their previous churches that I need to get gas on Sunday, but I can't because my church will judge me, so I have to drive out of town to get gas so that no one will see me because you're not allowed to get gas on the Sabbath. That's burdensome, overdoing it rules. No, Sabbath is a pointer, because the single most tiring thing, the single weightiest of burdens that are borne by you and I is this, believing that you, believing that I, weak, sinful, selfish, persistently disobedient, persistently led around by a deceptive heart, justifying our disobedience to the Lord at every turn, you and I, liars, cheats, covetous, lustful gossips, slanderers as we are. the the belief that we think that somehow we can do enough to be sure that when we pass from this life to the next and we stand before the judgment seat of God that we've somehow made enough of a name for ourselves that God would say, Come on in, you've done enough. Should the Lord ask you one day, Why ought I to open the door to heaven for you? Would you say, as so many do, I was a good person. I did so many good things. And then as the Lord opens the books and pours over your life, the catalog of your deeds, I want you to imagine that moment when the Lord looks at the book of your life and you now must give an account for every word you've spoken. For every thought that you've had, every thought you've entertained, every thought you've lingered on, every hostility and bitterness you've harbored in your heart and justified, every murder committed in your heart, as Jesus would say, every idolatrous motion and attempt to exalt yourself over another person, every lustful look, or as Jesus would say, adulterous affair in your heart, every repayment of good with evil, or every repayment of evil with evil every movement of your hand subtly or obviously against the good of another. Every time we, instead of returning a sheep to our enemy, kill that sheep. The whole span of our sin-filled lives opened up in the books and put on display and laid bare before the Lord. Do you think in that moment you can say, I was a good person? And you and I know in those moments of clarity and those moments of honesty that we sometimes experience with ourselves, we know who we are. We know how much we hide from one another because we're terrified that just another human being would know what's in my mind and what I do in the dark. Imagine one day the Lord will examine you. And if the Lord is as holy as scripture declares him to be, you have no chance I have no chance. We have been far too sinful. He must condemn you if all you bring in your hands is your own righteousness. He must throw you into the lake of fire. And yet we keep trying. Perhaps feeling good on the days when we think we've done well and mourning in our heart and in our soul on the days when we have failed to live up to what we think God expects from us. This is what Jesus speaks of as the exhausting, burdensome life. It is the life of all man-made religion, of all legalistic religion, of all people everywhere, except for those who hear the words of Christ. Come to me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest. The rest, Sabbath points to, is located and found in Christ and in Christ alone. In Christ our sin, though it abounds, is met with a grace that abounds all the more. And as you take the burden of Christ on yourself... As you hand over the heavy load of sin to Him, and He bears it in your place at the cross, then a whole new vista of scriptural promises and rest open up to you and are applied to you. The promise of Romans 8 sounds out and rings out to you. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, rest, my fellow believer." But listen, if you don't believe in Christ, none of these promises apply to you. You live, you move, and you breathe in a state of unrest and a state of burden. And should you die in that state, you will be thrown into the lake of fire for eternity, which is the just result and penalty for your sin. But the offer of rest is indeed held out to you this morning. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But for you, believer, in closing... Rest. Rest. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You who have received the mercy of Christ this morning, rest. You who know the overflow of his grace this morning, you who have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Listen, rest. Rest, all of you, for whom is richly provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Find rest, all of you this morning, who have by grace through faith in Christ, by believing in and trusting in Christ for salvation and forgiveness. Rest, all of you who have the greatest gift and the Sabbath, the greatest Sabbath known to man. As 1 John 1 tells us, that gift is fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Rest. And may your joy and rest in this fantastic news, in this wonderful, glorious salvation, be complete. Father, we thank you for this time that we have had this morning to explore Sabbath and what it pointed to, and we thank you for our ultimate rest in the Savior, in the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you that in Him we have a peace that passes understanding. In Him, everything that we have ever done, past, present, and future, has been dealt with and atoned for in those, for those who believe in His name. In Him, we no longer have to carry the weighty and heavy burden of trying to th- secure our own righteousness, which can never happen. In him, that moment that we stand before you and you look at us and you see us clothed in his perfect righteousness. And you will say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master to look forward to that day and know that the outcome has already been secured for me in Christ, secured for us who believe in Christ. Oh, the rest that that brings. Let us remember at all times the good news of Jesus Christ, that we have rest and peace in him. God, you are so good to us. You provide for us in so many ways. And we just want to thank you once again for providing ultimately our great rest in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. <laughs> Amen.